1: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. Very excited about our guest today, Dr. Mark Hyman. He is a practicing family physician, but really an internationally recognized leader, speaker, educator, and advocate in the field of functional medicine, something we talk a lot about on this show. He is a 12-time New York Times bestselling author and so much more. A regular contributor on several television shows and networks, including CBS This Morning, Today, Good Morning America, The View, and CNN. He's also an advisor and a guest co-host, on the Dr. Oz Show. We're going to be talking about his book, Food Fix, How to Grow, Produce, and Consume Food to Resolve the World's Health, Environmental, Social, and Economic Crises. Welcome to the show.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate being here.
1: This is a really important book. Um, Someone had to do it. I'm really glad you did. Can we send send this to every member of Congress? You know this, and we're going to get into why. You'll see as uh, he talks to us about this book first off, this is, you've claimed this is probably the most important book you feel you've ever written. So let's just start there.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I've written a lot about health and various aspects, but, you know, as I sit with my patients in my office, I realize it's increasingly difficult to do my job to help them if they're living in a food system that provides them with the worst possible food on the planet that destroys their health and that uh, drives their behavior and decisions. So I really, really was focused on how do, we, how do we go upstream and solve the big issues? How do I go and, and actually get to the root cause? And if my patients are sick from food, well, what's causing the food? Well, it's the food system. What's causing the food system? It's our food policies. And what's causing the food policies? It's uh, the food industry's influence and billions of dollars of lobbying and 187 lobbyists for every member of Congress. So, yes, it's a big problem that we have to fix.
1: Let's talk about changing the food system because you claim, listen, we're going to spend about, what, $95 trillion on chronic disease over the next 35 years. Let's talk about this true cost and impact on our economy and our planet. I know there's so many angles to this, but we'll start there.
2: Yeah, well, you know, most of the costs of our food are not born in the price we pay at the checkout counter, right? So if we look at Just For example, corn. Let's just look at the price of corn and everything that's made from corn, which is pretty much every processed food, and not just the high-fructose corn syrup, but every packaged or processed food has some corn-derivative product in it. One, we grow the food in a way that damages the soil, that depletes our freshwater resources, that destroys biodiversity, kills pollinators, and that drives climate change. So what are all the costs of that? They're immeasurable. And then the food that's produced is turned into processed food, which then gets fed to uh, the poorest and most food secure and uh, food insecure among us through the food stamp program so we're paying about 75 billion dollars a year of federal taxpayer money for that and then the patients who are people who are eating that get sick and we're paying for that through medicare and medicaid so we literally are paying four times including the subsidies and supports we pay for growing the food so we're literally paying for that food four times and the true price of that soda or junk food if you count it for all those Collateral damage costs would probably be a hundred dollars, or maybe a thousand dollars. I don't know, and maybe the cost of a feedlot burger should be a thousand bucks, and the cost of a regenerative burger should be a five dollars. So I, th- I think we we don't understand the, these consequences that are the result of the food we're eating. I mean, just let's just take fertilizer for example. If you're eating food that's been grown with uh, chemical intensive, fertilizer intensive agriculture, the fertilizer to make the fertilizer uses about one to two percent of our global energy supplies. It is mostly from fracking. Fertilizer companies are the biggest purchasers of fracking oil, more than Exxon. That releases those fracking wells release forty, fifty percent more methane, and that contributes to about a quarter of all methane release, which is a very potent greenhouse gas, twenty-five times more potent than carbon dioxide. And then you put it on the soil and this damages the soil, which makes it more like dirt, and it requires more and more fertilizer to work. So then we need seven times more fertilizer than we did 40 years ago. All that fertilizer damages the biodiversity in the soil, which makes the plants less nutritious. So you need organic matter and microbes in the soil in order to extract the nutrients from the soil to go into your plants. So your, your mineral content... And nutrient content of the plants we eat, even if they're organic, if they're grown, you know, in ways that, that are on bad soil, are far less nutritious. And then if that weren't enough, one more thing, if that weren't enough, we, we then have the runoff from the nitrogen fertilizer that goes into the river, streams, and lakes, killing them through over a uh, bloom of algae that basically sucks all the oxygen out of the water and kills all the fish. And fish. And in the Gulf of Mexico, there's, this, there's a dead zone the size of New Jersey that kills 212,000 metric tons of fish every year. And there's 400 similar dead zones around the world. So what is the cost of that when you buy a vegetable grown in that way or your GMO soy burger, impossible burger that's grown with destructive agriculture. So I just, the costs are staggering. And then, of course, we have the cost of chronic disease, which is, uh, you know, going to indirect and direct costs are going to be $95 trillion over the next 35 years. And the cost of pesticide harm to farm workers, the, I mean, it just goes on and on. I mean, I could literally, I wrote an entire chapter on just this topic. So the true cost of food, we need to do a true cost accounting, and we need to get real about what we're doing to ourselves, to the environment and the planet, by, by growing food and eating food in the way we do.
1: Yeah, it really rang true to me when you were talking about corn because I know that Hawaii, it's a huge problem. They're really destroying the land. The chemical companies are going in and testing GMO corn, essentially ruining the soil. And and then not to mention the pesticides and everything that's happening because there's no regulation there. They can do it as much as they want, however often they want without any sort of you know accounting for that. So gosh, just one thing. It's a domino effect. One of the things that really freaked me out uh, about <laughs> reading this was, you know, let's talk about those big food buy partnerships. Let's talk about that Texas school with Domino's pizza. I, I don't think people really understand how, how, how bad this is. Yeah.
2: Okay. Well, um, the thing is we, we have to look holistically at what the food industry does to drive his agenda. And, and I think that the, there' there's a number of ways it does it. One is through funding science. Uh, so they fund 12 times as much science as, the uh, NIH and nutrition to pollute the science and promote bad information that like soda for example is not bad for you or that, you know pesticides are healthy and so forth second second they they fund uh, professional organizations like the American Academy of Di- America I mean the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics American Heart Association American Cancer Society and so forth they fund them which then co ops their opinion and they provide professional uh, guidelines which should be uh inadmissible because they're corrupted and third they they influence um uh partnerships and and influence social groups like community-based groups like the NAACP and Hispanic Federation, and they give money to social causes and corporate social responsibility that leads to, for example, the African-American and Hispanic community opposing soda taxes, even when they're the most effective because of how Koch funds them. For example, Koch funds the King Center, it funds Spelman College in Atlanta you know it just it's just a, a terrifying thing and lastly uh, there are there are front groups that are really in the like four years it was 500 million dollars just spent by four companies on front groups for example, the American Council on Science and Health, which sounds great, but if you look at what they're doing, they're promoting the use of pesticides, trans fat, high fructose corn syrup, smoking, and, and and glyphosate, saying it's all fine. And when you look below the hood, it's all funded by Monsanto and big ag and big food. It's totally corrupt. And and there's other ones like Crop Life. And there's a whole bevy of these groups that are that are misinformation groups that are Present, presenting themselves as scientifically reputable groups. And I think this is invisible to most people, uh, and it's it's done at scale in a very deliberate way, not to mention the massive efforts on lobbying. Uh, just, just on one issue alone, GMO labeling, in one year, the food industry spent $192 million just on corrupting the politicians to create what was it called we we call the dark act basically denying your right to know about gmo in your food so it's 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 i hate to say it but it's it's pretty um, it's pretty pervasive
1: yeah, it was uh, shocking to hear, uh, read in your book, that from 2013 to 2017, food advertising on black-targeted TV increased by 50%. So that means that black teens viewed 119% more junk food-related ads, mostly for soda, than white teens. I mean, we just don't think about this. No. Black or white, while you know, watching TV, and I mean, we know it's happening, we kind of see it. And, and again, let's talk about the food industry's prey on children. Um, that That's also such a huge... Uh, huge factor there as well.
2: Oh, my God. There's $11 billion spent on junk food advertising, and it highly manipulated children who often can't tell the difference between an ad and, and reality. Uh, what's even more concerning about television ads, which are for the worst foods at the worst times, and, uh, you know... There's been attempts at restriction of these and it's been imposed by Nickelodeon and the Disney Channel and all these great people we think are you know out for the good and and the the stealth advertising is even more concerning on social media and the internet because uh, it doesn't look like advertising for example there's free advert games which are basically digital games on Facebook and social media that kids can play and embedded in the games are McDonald's and Oreo cookies and all this processed food that subliminally hooks these kids. And, and, then we know that it works. Uh, and in Chile, for example, they outlawed any kind of marketing to children, which they should, which they've done in many other countries, uh, except the United States, uh, over 50 countries have had some kind of restriction on this and it works. Uh, in Chile, they did it and they found it was four times as effective as a soda tax.
1: Okay. So let's talk about the soda tax. How, explain to us how that would help us and help our society.
2: Well, I think I think the book is is an attempt to not just lay out the, the horrible landscape of what we're experiencing and the devastating destruction of our food system on our health, on our economy, on communities, on uh the poor and minorities, on national security and education and climate and environment, which is a lot. It's about mapping out the solutions and the inspiration that is possible when you when you see How this can be solved. In other words, we know that, for example, by things like regenerative agriculture scaled up, we're starting at the beginning, at the food cycle, at the seed and the soil and the land, growing good food in a way that's good for the soil, good for water resources, good for biodiversity, reverses climate change, provides good food that's better for us, that makes the farmers more money. and on farms that are more climate and drought and flood resistant and it's a win-win-win for everybody so that is happening there's a huge movement of regenerative agriculture in this country there's a lot of investment in it and it's very inspiring to me even companies like Danone uh, Nestle Unilever uh, and 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 general Mills are moving towards regenerative agriculture uh, and and I think there's a huge interest in this even from the food industry because they get that they're Their supply chain is threatened by the way we grow food, because the very way we grow food threatens their ability to grow food in the future. So I think it's really an exciting moment for us to think differently about that. So that's that's something that's happening at scale. I think also there's a lot of things that individuals can do in their communities and their homes. You know, yes, uh, we need to change policy and we need to change business practices. And those are the biggest levers. But our behavior as consumers drives those changes in businesses, makes them pay attention. Why is General Mills focusing on regenerative agriculture? Because guess what? Their customers are not happy with their products and, and, and want to change. And they have to sort of dial into that. Uh, and we're seeing also you know, uh, uh, policy changes. For example, in the government, there's a whole huge food waste initiative. We didn't talk about it, but food waste, you know, is a massive cause of climate change through methane production from garbage and landfills. So all your veggies that you're throwing out, that's also part of climate change. And so there's a huge initiative by the FDA, the EPA, and the USDA on food waste to try to reduce and eliminate food waste in this country. Uh, and there's there's also local things you can do: join a community-supported agriculture, shop at your farmers market, start a compost pile, change what you're eating, and choose more regenerative foods. It's harder to find, but you can, and you can find local farmers that are doing agriculture in this way. Or you can go online, for example, to Mariposa Ranch and get regeneratively raised beef at a very cheap price. So there's a lot of ways you can be active if you're if you're motivated. You know, get involved with a political campaign, join an organization that is actually doing work around climate or food or environment. Uh, focus on 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 your 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 voting, uh, which most people don't vote anymore. You know, in this country, fifty percent of people vote in presidential elections, which is ridiculous. And by looking at what your congressmen and senators are doing through FoodPolicyAction.org you can see what they're voting on you can get active Uh, many congressmen have been voted out because of their policies through massive social media campaigns so there's tremendous leverage we have by by our choices voting with our fork with our wallets with our votes and in our communities if you have kids, work in the schools. you know. If you have a workplace, change what the food is in the workplace. I mean, I was at a business the other day. And they got rid of all soda in their workplace. Cleveland Clinic has no more sugar-sweetened beverages. And many other hospitals, 30 around the country, have no more sugar-sweetened beverages. So things are going to happen, and that's what's so exciting.
1: Yeah, there, there's a lot of movement for change. We've been a part of it for a while. Uh, we'll continue to do so. I think one of the things people wouldn't think about uh, that you bring up is... Yeah. Tell us how, uh, tell us how the food stamp program fuels this epidemic of obesity, et cetera, and, and then tell us how we can reform that. Cause I just don't think people would connect those two. And, um, I'd love to hear you talk about that.
2: Yeah. Um, absolutely. So the food stamp program was a great service that was for food insecure, for people who are hungry and, and malnourished children and malnourished adults, which is really a great public program. Uh, the one problem with it is that it never was focused on nutrition. It was focused on calories. And that's the problem. Like most other nutrition programs, like the school lunch program, has nutrition guidelines. We can argue whether they're good or bad, but there's guidelines. The Women, Infants, and Children program, or WIC, also has quality nutrition guidelines. We don't have that. And that's why it's it, it, the farm bill, which should be called the food bill. It is the Biggest government program, $750 billion, um, $75 billion a year for 10 years for food stamps for 46 million Americans, one in four of which I think are kids. And it's mostly processed food. 75% of the food purchased of the food stamps is processed food. The people who, who have food stamps are more unhealthy than those who are qualified but don't get food stamps. And 10% of the food stamp budget – or seven million a year, billion a year, is used to buy soda for the for the by the poor, and it's heavily marketed to them in very disturbing ways. And it it leads to illness and disease and obesity. Uh, And, you know, we basically provide through taxpayer money 31 billion servings of soda to the poor every year. Um, And there's been huge opposition by the hunger groups and by the food industry to restrict food stamps for any type of junk food or soda. However, there's a lot of studies that show if you incentivize food stamp recipients or SNAP recipients with, incentives for buying healthy food and you create disincentives for buying junk food. In other words, maybe it's 30% more to buy a soda and 30% less to buy a vegetable. If you do that, you literally could save millions of lives and hundreds of billions of dollars in healthcare costs. And yet, this is not being done because of the influence of the food industry.
1: And that makes sense. It seems that there's a lot of companies now with their health benefits that they offer to employees. They will, you know, hey, if you hook up your Fitbit and track your thing, you'll get breaks or you'll get incentives or points and so yeah. I like that idea because there needs to be some kind of incentive and you know, it is true when you go to the store and you see someone with the like food stamp card and you look at their grocery basket. I think, too, it's a matter of like they just think it's cheap to get a bunch of frozen pizzas and it's cheaper when they could just get a bunch of steaks and freeze them individually. <laughs> it would be you know, a lot healthier and cheaper. And I think just they also just, you know, a lot of people don't know how to shop. Marketing soda to poor people. Wow, that seems like kicking someone when they're down, <laughs> considering what we know about soda. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the, um, some of the chemicals going on with soda and, and what that can lead to. I mean, we we know, of course, glycemic, indi- like you know, 38 grams of sugar in a Coca-Cola. But tell us a little bit by why people should, at the very least, you know, if there's other things they can do, they got to get rid of the soda.
2: Well, we know unequivocally that, that sugar, especially high fructose corn syrup, are among the biggest drivers of obesity, belly fat, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, depression, you name it. And it's an easy win for people to cut out sugar calories from their diet, from liquid calories. So if there's one thing you can do to dramatically improve your health is cut out all liquid sugar calories, right? That's any energy drink, soft drink, sugar-sweetened coffees. I mean, some Starbucks coffees have more sugar in them than a can of soda up to twice as much. <laughs> it's terrifying. And and so people need to understand that when you drink Sugar it has very profoundly different effects. It makes you hungrier. It um, actually disinhibits you from eating. It actually doesn't count into your calorie consumption for the day in terms of your brain. Uh, your body still thinks it's hungry and doesn't register it as, as being adequate. So I think we really are 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 needing to think clear, clearly about the single most important thing we can do in our life is get out sugar sweetened calories from liquid calories.
1: You mentioned, uh, you know, chemicals on our crops. So, you know, I I go to like the the Home Depot, Do It Center, and there's a huge wall of Roundup. And when I walk in, I feel like I'm just looking at a wall of cancer. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I'm like, why is this even allowed? Because it just seems like obviously there was a class action lawsuit on it. Um, people were, you know, getting cancer we, at the very least. Uh, we, but this stuff's just being sold at the store. Like, how is that still possible? And, you know, let's talk a little bit about the chemicals that are being used and what they lead to, including, I guess, Parkinson's and birth defects, right? <laughs>
2: Glyphosate, yeah, it's a big problem. It's the most abundant, 70% of the agricultural chemicals used in the world are glyphosate. And why we have to use more and more for the GMO foods is because they work less and less, and there's more herbicide resistance. So we're having to use more and more of these toxic chemicals. Uh, They're banned in many countries. They are um, linked to, obviously, cancer. There's been multi-billion dollar lawsuits uh, that have been won against uh, the makers of Monsanto and now Bayer, who own it, that's been linked to epigenetic effects, uh, which means if you expose a like a a rat to glyphosate, two generations down, the effects will be found in the grandchildren or the grand rats, and that will be, you know, birth defects and hormonal issues, cancer, renal issues, and uh, on top of that, it, it really disturbs your microbiome. So we know that glyphosate is a massive microbiome disturber, and our microbiome is critical for every aspect of our health. In fact, the average uh, plant-based impossible burger made from GMO soy has 110 times the amount of glyphosate that's required to destroy your microbiome, according to animal studies. So that really concerns me. So I think we have to really be serious about kind of limiting and getting rid of our chemicals from... um, from the entire, uh, uh, food chain that we have and being as good as we can to stop that.
1: Yeah. And this, this food is, it's like you said, it's making us anxious, depressed. It's messing with our brains. Um, you say, you know, one in 10, ten children have ADHD, uh, and brain development is the worst and poorest kids because they have the worst diets. Um, Gosh, is that sad? Um, it, It it just seems like you know. Again, I know you know this. You're a functional medicine doctor, but when we look at the standard world of your classic uninformed doc, who. Doesn't know anything about nutrition, and someone comes in and is depressed, and it's immediately a pill, right? You're going to them for pill or surgery, right? Um, right. I guess on this note, I would say, you know, what can be done about informing doctors? I mean, how can either the program be trained, retrained for them when they're going through medical school, or what can be done about that? I mean, I know you know this, but. Um, you know, I've spoken and interviewed so many people that have cured rheumatoid arthritis, spent 10 years on biologics, didn't need any of them, just needed to fix their diet. I know someone who was on antidepressants since they were 11, finally figured out it was a gluten and dairy issue. Once they quit that around age 40, oh my God, they were off of all antidepressants in a year and had this story that was given to them. And so we we want to go to an MD to help us. Not everybody has the money to go to a functional doctor. What can be done? Done in that arena? How can you guys as MDs or how can that be changed to get doctors more educated in nutrition?
2: Well, I think there's a number of proposals for that. You know, one is changing the licensing exams for doctors because that determines what they're taught in school. So if you change what questions are on the test and put 10% of the questions, nutrition questions, it will drive the Medical schools curriculum. Well, that's an easy one. As uh, you can mandate it in, for example, Medicare could mandate a nutrition evaluation for patients in order for reimbursement. Or they get paid. You have to actually document a patient's nutrition, nutrition status, and document intervention. So there's. A lot of ways is that. And then we could reimburse for food as medicine, which is starting to happen in different groups. There's uh, food as medicine programs. There's f- food pharmacies, medically tailored meals that have been documented to, to save huge amounts of money, billions of dollars, and, and that are, are effective. And if those can be scaled, then we can start to bring food as medicine into healthcare.
1: I really like that you talk about how being a farm worker is one of the most dangerous, uh, aside from just the chemicals Tell us also why that's just one of the the worst and also most unsupported jobs. And you know, I live in California; we see it all the time. And you know, it's it's not just injuries because there's a lot of people on workman's comp. They're bending over all day cutting cabbage. It's unergonomically appropriate for most humans. Uh, but tell us as well. Tell us more about about that.
2: For sure, I, I think that you know people don't appreciate that the biggest industry in the world is the food system. That the number one group of workers in America are food and farm workers, 20 million people, that they're not protected by the same labor laws that protect everybody else. And This was a artifact of the 1930s Fair Labor Standards Act, which omitted farm and food workers because most of them at the time were African American and they didn't want to have to pay them a living wage. Or minimum wage or provide the same labor protections. So they're not protected by minimum wage standards. They're not protected by uh, any kind of uh, overtime. They work seven days a week. They don't get vacation. They work in Brutal conditions. There's often slavery-like conditions. They're not allowed to often take breaks, go to the washroom. I mean, in, in the in the chicken no, fact- no
1: pregnancy leave, right? They'll have a baby. Yeah, right well, back in forget the about that. No healthcare,
2: yeah. no housing, no nothing. And a lot of these farm workers just sleep on the dirt because they can't even make enough money to get rent where they are in Napa Valley, where they're picking wine for all the rich people. Uh, you know, and and they're 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 really struggling. And, and of course, you've got just the the chemical intensive agriculture that is harmful to them the pesticides in their children lead to loss of 41 million IQ points they kill 10 to 20,000 farm workers a year you know we pay for all that through medicaid uh, emergency visits we pay for the fact that we don't pay our food and farm workers enough for example the food workers on tips you know we we, we pay billions of dollars in tips that we should be paid by the, their employers through their living wage uh, they don't get health care they can't afford often to They get health care and they end up on Medicaid uh, and and using government uh, health care, which is fine, but those all costs are, are not borne by the food system that's creating them. So uh, I, I feel like, you know, it's a, it's a real issue, but there's there's really good news. There's there's farm workers that have banded together, like the Coalition of Immokalee Workers in Florida that were to group great harvest most of the tomatoes in America, and, and they basically boycotted uh, Taco Bell because they wanted them to pay a penny more per pound, which would have doubled their wages uh, for the farm workers. And the joined a fair food program which protects their human rights and provides fair working conditions. And after eventually they got them to sign on and they got most of the other big companies in the food system and grocers to sign on. And now uh, you know they they really dramatically raised the quality of their life, their standards, their living wage. And uh, and they did it through grassroots efforts of really uneducated farm workers from other countries who barely could speak English, but you know, were human beings that deserve dignity and respect except for Publix and Wendy's, everybody's signed on to it. Publix is a big grocery store chain in, um, in Florida.
1: Yeah. It's, um, like you said, it's a, it's a crazy problem, but it is fixable. Uh, you give so many great tips on how, how we just at home can help whether it's compost or, you know, end food waste. Um, you know, even like you said, make a super stew. If food's going to go bad soon, try to conserve. Um, I also want to talk quickly about, you know, because related to the brain, the microbiome and the gut. So I have a couple of questions. Well, it's interesting, you know, I saw you on Red Table Talk, which is for the people that are listening, Jada Pinkett Smith's talk show on Facebook, and she had her family on there and you came on and it's, it seemed like everybody had leaky gut, even though, right. Everyone had leaky gut, even though they looked glowing, they looked healthy, they all work out. Right. Um, so
2: they all had tummy problems though.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, um, I, Aside from telling us about leaky gut, I, which I, I want you to explain again, it just seems like people are living their life thinking that having tons of gas is normal. <laughs> and it's absolutely not. If you're out there and you're tooting all the time, uh, that's not normal. Um, but tell us a little bit about leaky gut and the connection with the brain and why it is so important to start there. I mean, we've got to start everywhere. We've got to throw out the canola oils. But tell us about leaky gut and really what it is uh, and why it matters that we all fix our guts and get to the bottom of this.
2: Well, our gut is the center of our health, and unless we really take care of our gut, we really can't take care of our health. And we live in a gut-busting culture. We eat processed food, which damages our gut and destroys the microbiome. We take drugs like antibiotics, acid blockers, uh, and alcohol, all of which damage our gut. Uh, we are exposed to things like glyphosate, which damages our gut. So many, many people have really bad guts, and and that determines the quality of your health because it regulates inflammation, it regulates your metabolism, it regulates your brain chemistry. And I think it's really important that we we all learn how to take care of our inner garden.
1: And just tell us a little bit how it does affect brain health, so that if someone is dealing with anxiety, depression, or you know, brain fog. What is the connection between the gut and the brain in fourth grade terms that would make someone understand and want to get to the bottom of it versus taking Prozac?
2: You know, well, uh, your gut is not like Las Vegas. What stays in the gut doesn't stay in the gut, right? (laughs) It actually gets out. And so it leaks through. So bacterial metabolites, bacterial toxins, food proteins, they leak into your system. Your immune system is there. It creates inflammation in your body. creates inflammation in your brain. And we know that depression, anxiety, autism, ADD, even Alzheimer's, they're all inflammatory diseases of the brain. So they have huge impacts on the mood. We used to think irritable bowel patients or emotional and unstable because uh, and that's what gave them the irritable bowel. It turns out it's just the other way around. That your microbiome is screwed up, it causes irritable bowel. That feeds back to your brain and makes you anxious and irritable and depressed. Has there been
1: anything in your life as an MD? I mean, you know, you you trained a long time ago, but since obviously you keep up on the latest, you're constantly learning. This is what we expect from functional medicine doctors, and we expect it from most MDs, even though they don't. You've gone above and beyond. Has there ever been a time in your life where you publicly or personally had to like fall on your sword as an MD and backtrack about like perhaps a philosophy or was there a food group you once thought was good and now you realize based on science and things coming out that it's not because I just know the, the journey of a lot of doctors who you know some I interviewed and they go you know we just didn't know so we didn't test this or we didn't know so we suggested this until we found out. Um, I'm just wondering what some of those might have been for you over these years as an MD.
2: Oh of course well I Of course. I was on the low-fat bandwagon. (laughs) I was like telling my patients to eat low-fat and eat tons of carbs and grains. And, uh, you know, I just didn't realize that the dietary guidelines were complete garbage and based on very weak science and that we needed to change that.
1: I forget when it happened, but I believe, I don't know, maybe five years ago, was it Sweden or Norway? One of these countries came out and they were like, all right, we're changing the food pyramid. And it basically, I think they changed it to kind of a high fat, moderate protein, low carb paradigm. What can we do about this food pyramid? It is really a diabetes making food pyramid, even the diabetes, the Pacific Diabetes Association um, out of Hawaii, if you look at, I mean, two to four servings of fruit and six to 11 servings of grains for diabetics. I mean, if, 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 if you're not even being guided by your own disease association. So what can we do about that? I mean, this is a call to action and all of these steps are so key, but how, how do you think that could even happen?
2: Well, I do talk about the dietary guidelines in, in my book, Food Fix, and how those need to be changed and how there's integrity needs to be put in the process. But, you know, um, right now, under President Trump, uh, there's 13 of the 20 members of the committee are conflicted with food industry conflicts. Uh, he's put weird restrictions on what can be looked at and what can't. Only science by the government can be looked at, which – there's not most of the good science. Uh, we can't look at any data on ultra-processed foods, on meat, on low-carb diets. I mean, it's just kind of ridiculous that, you know, if science is meant to look at all the data, and to say, here's the guardrails, and just ignore that fact over there, and ignore this fact over there, and don't pay attention to this body of research, is just unconscionable uh, and unscientific, which we we know the, the Trump administration is. And I think I think hopefully this can change over time, but we we do need to sh- you know, push towards more in- integrity in dietary guidelines.
1: Speaking of, you know, the FDA, I think a lot of people would be like, okay, whatever. But then again, we, like a lot of people, adhere to, well, it's not FDA approved. And people ask, why would the FDA allow these chemicals and these harmful things in food? And I mean, I know it's going to go back to probably a similar answer you gave us, but detail that for us, because it does seem insane. We expect these agencies to look out for us, and it's, you know, allowing things that are harmful.
2: Well, you know, like I said, it's often a revolving door between industry and these agencies. The recent head of the Food and Drug Administration just took a job with Pfizer on the board. Uh, people from Monsanto then rotate into the government and are part of the FDA regulatory group. I mean, it's it's just unfortunate that the industry is so smart, so well-funded, and so effective at co-opting government. You know, I talked to the former Secretary of Agriculture under President George W. Bush, who said to me, Mark, you know, asked her, "Why can't we have dietary guidelines that represent science? Why can't we have food labels that make sense? Why can't we have nutrition guidelines within SNAP? You know, why can't we, you know, stop the subsidization of foods that make us fat and sick?" And she says, "Mark, you're right. The only reason is that the food industry has a lock on Congress and the White House. So." That's what's disturbing to me. So,
1: what does it take—the new change of guard, or a new administration, or a new president—to come in and what appoint all new people to the FDA regulatory g- panel? We
2: do. We do. We need. We need. We need. A, we need a national food policy. And we need, and, and I'm actually working on that. I'm launching a, something called the Food Fix Campaign. It's a nonprofit where we're pulling together top activists uh, and legislators uh, in government. Uh, I'm working with a whole team on Republican, Democrat side to change policy, to find the leverage points, to to move things along in the right direction, whether this administration stays or not. So there's still work that can be done, and this is really a bipartisan issue, and I think I think there's a lot of effort. We need a grassroots movement to combine with it. So it's super super important.
1: Tell us, um, is sort of in, in wrapping up here, how can we, other than reading your books, listening to interviews, how can we work with you or, um, you know, if people are out there and they're like, gosh, I, I, I want his knowledge or I'm in a serious health crisis and I need help, where would you direct them and how can we benefit more from you personally?
2: Well, sure. You know, I have tremendous resources. I've written, you know, 16 books. I have all sorts of health programs. You can look at my website, drhyman.com. I've got a, one of the leading health posca- podcasts out there called The Doctor's Pharmacy. Uh, and my recent book, Food, What the Heck Should I Eat, is a great guideline on nutrition. Uh, also, my new book, Food Fix, How to Save Our Health, Our Economy, Our Communities, and Our Planet One Bite at a Time, is, is, is a great guide to understanding the problem and solutions. And there's a whole action guide in there of exactly what we can do ourselves with our own life, with our communities, our businesses, and even with policy change that we all can be involved in. And I think it's, it's a really empowering moment. It's the moment we all have to band together and act to change this. And I think we can.
1: It's a really, really incredible book. It's very empowering. And uh, like I said, I've not seen anything like it. I'm so It's so comprehensive. It is so great that you've taken all of your years of knowledge to basically help our country and the world because this is This is getting out of hand. I, I, if I see one more commercial for a glucose monitoring medication, (laughs) Dr. Hyman, I think I'm going to jump off a bridge. You know, it's just insane. Um, what would, what other thoughts or, uh, things would you like to leave our audience with? Uh, as far as this topic on food fix? Well,
2: I think I shouldn't be depressed. Uh, it's important to name the problem so we can solve it. And I think there's just massive efforts uh, in business, philanthropy, innovation, government policy. This is a food is medicine working group in Congress. I just got reached out to by a senator for Maine who wants to work on you know health in the military. So I think there's a lot of interest and excitement around this. And I think everybody needs to sort of band together. And we need to, we need to come together to solve this problem and, and, and create a food fix for everyone. Our future depends on it future of ourselves, our planet, and our families, and communities, it really is an existential threat. And I think now is the time when we have to get serious about it. And, and I think everybody has got to get on deck. And, and that's why I wrote the book.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us today. We will put everything to connect with you on social media and your website yeah. um, in our show notes.
2: And they can go to foodfixbook.com to learn more and get a free video on five uh, steps you can do to help your planet and yourself
1: Yeah, this is the more we are armed with this kind of knowledge, the conversations we have with others, our family, our friends, school boards, etc. are going to be more meaningful. So I suggest everybody pick up a copy of Food Fix. It's incredible. Thanks again for joining us. I really appreciate your time.
0: Okay, take care. Hi, Brad Kearns here with something different than a stiff commercial script message. I want to give you an authentic endorsement for one of my favorite supplements of all time. It's called Adaptogenic Calm. used to be called Primal Calm. And the key ingredient in this formula is called Phosphatidylserine, or PS. And this agent has been shown in hundreds of studies to blunt the catabolic effects of the stress hormone cortisol in the bloodstream that's released in response to all forms of life stress, whether it's a series of difficult workouts, extensive jet travel, personal stress of any kind, we're constantly triggering the fight-or-flight mode in modern life, in those heavy training cycles when you're really pushing your body and trying so hard not to fall into that overtraining, overstress, foggy brain function spiral downward. That's right. Phosphatidylserine has also been shown to enhance cognitive function. It's commonly used in Europe, on cognitive decline patients. And you can make that connection between when you're frazzled and overstressed and how your brain doesn't work quite as well. So, this is a brain function enhancing, stress hormone reducing secret weapon, adaptogenic calm. Look for it on primalblueprint.com.